Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In the first few chapters of book two of his work on anger, Seneca is going to introduce a process, a three-stage process by which anger develops within us that has become probably one of the most famous parts of this work. It gets talked about a lot in contemporary literature in part because there's a certain plausibility to it and it's often taken as being the stoic point of view. If we look at other Stoic thinkers like Epictetus, we can see that may be not the case. But let's see what Seneca himself has to say. So he begins by telling us that, you know, we have to look at whether anger begins with an act of judgment, a eudicio, which is also going to be translated as deliberation sometimes. So it doesn't have to be like a single act of judgment. It could be a process of judgment or whether it's beginning with just an impulse, impetu, you know, is it something that we are ourselves involved in or is it just things happening to us that make us angry then and it's sort of out of our control? So this is a very important question. And he says, is it set in motion voluntarily or like many things that come about inside us without us even being aware? You know, when we have this model of somebody pushing our buttons, a kind of mechanical model, right? It's sort of like there's a stimulus and then anger is the response and there's not much that you can do about it. You just get angry and act on the anger. Maybe reason is involved to some extent trying to figure out how am I going to get that bastard who did something to me, but it's definitely not running the show in any important sense. So he tells us something really important here. Anger is aroused, moviat, it is brought into motion by an appearance, a species here in the Latin. And this is a very important technical term for the Stoics. An appearance in Greek is phantasia, which we often translate also as impression. It also could be translated as imagination. And so what happens is something occurs and we see it, we sense it, we think about it, we respond to it. We identify it as being an instance of something. And what is the appearance? the appearance of somebody doing wrong in Uriai. In Uriah means not just injury, but like injustice to us, or it could be to other people as well. So he says that when we think about this, we have the impression or the appearance that we've been wronged. Now, the question is whether anger follows directly on that appearance, launching its attack without the mind's collaboration, or whether it's stirred with the mind's assent. Notice that he's not saying, oh, it's all in your head. You know, nothing outside of you actually took place. There isn't any real injustice going on, but what contribution do we make to this? This is a very important question because if we want to be able to manage or control or even 
eliminate anger, well, then we'd better have some agency. We'd better have some place where we can actually do something about that. So he's going to talk about this process of inference. He says that anger ventures nothing on its own, but it acts only with the mind's approval. Why? Because having the impression or the appearance that somebody did wrong. And so having, or literally taking, taking that appearance, capere, plus adding to this the desire or rather desiring to take vengeance for it, concupiscere, right? The very word that we see often rendered as concupiscence, right? There's a strong desire for doing something that's retaliatory for vindicating oneself. So these get combined, coniungere is the word that he's using there, like literally married together into a judgment, a eudicio. And what is that judgment? Well, it's got two sides to it. One ought not to have been harmed, right? There is a violation of some sort of should, debuise uh, in the Latin there, and that one ought to be avenged, vindicari. One ought to be vindicated. Things ought to be put right. So we've got this entire process of inference taking place there. And the question is, well, do we have any role in it? And Seneca thinks that we do. So he's going to set out these three motions, right? And he'll talk about these after giving some examples in section four of this. He says there's an initial involuntary movement, right? These three movements to the passion, the ad factus of anger, the movements, the motore, right? There's a first one. This is not voluntary. And you notice that he does use this language of the will or volition quite a bit in this section. He also uses the term invitus, which means without one's consent or, you know, just without one choosing it. So this first movement happens. We're going to look at that in just a moment calls this first movement a preparation, a preparatio for the passion. And we should uh, reflect on the fact that he doesn't use the word passio in most of these cases. He uses the word ad factus, which you may also recognize if you're aware of the Latin as affectus, right? As an affection, something a bit broader than an emotion specifically. So we feel this preparation for it. There's a threatening signal, cominatio, right? A warning that something is happening. And, you know, this is where the first beginnings of anger take place, but this is not yet anger, Seneca wants to say. Then we have a second movement, which we're going to look at a little bit. He calls this an expression of will, com voluntate. It is with volition. It is with choice on our part, not resolved stubbornly, known contumely, right? Contumaki, not being obstinate, not resolving itself foolishly in its point of view. And he says something very interesting here as well. This is born from deliberation, eudicio, again, same term, right? Is it beginning with a judgment? Is it beginning with deliberation? So it's born from deliberation and it can also be ended or taken away, tolere in Latin, by that same deliberation, by something that we are in control of. And then we get to the third movement. And at this point, reason is gone. 
right? Or if reason is working, it's solely in an instrumental way. He says that this is already out of control, impotence. Now you might say impotence, that means powerless, right? Well, it's powerless with respect to the impulse of anger. It is already overthrown or literally kicked out reason, evikit, right? And it has affirmed ad provavit, as he's going to say, the appearance right? So he says that it, it actually moves by will and judgment, voluntate, judicio, towards vengeance, ultionem, the same vengeance that was talked about as being desired in that inference, right? So we have these three things. First movement, not in our control. Second movement, in our control. Third movement, also not in our control, but for different reasons. Because we took the control or the capacity or the freedom that we had, and we threw it away by collaborating with that first movement. And we wind up in the third movement. And now there's nothing we can really do at that stage. Uh, you could try to reason with an angry person, but if it can actually take hold, as Seneca says, well, they're not yet at this third place. They're in the second movement stage. So let's come back to the first one. He tells us that there's all sorts of movements that occur independent of our will, and we can't overcome them or avoid them. What are examples? Shivering when we're sprinkled with cold water, revulsion at touching certain things, the way our hair stands on end at bad news, the blush that spreads when we hear obscene words, the dizziness that comes over us when we look down a cliff. These are all physical reactions. And can we control them at all? A little bit later, he's going to say that we cannot avoid that first mental jolt with reason's help, just as we cannot avoid the other movements that befall our bodies, just as we cannot avoid having another's yuan provoke our own, right? Or avoid closing our eyes at the sudden poke of another's fingers. Reason cannot overcome these movements, but perhaps their force can be lessened if we become used to them and constantly keep a watch for them. Um, this is where he actually says that second movement provoked by eudicio deliberation can be overcome by it. So, you know, when we see things that we know are going to rile ourselves up, we can pay attention to that and minimize those sorts of effects and occasions. And what are these? Well, he goes on and he says, there's all sorts of things that function to get anger going. We're watching shows at theatrical games and reading ancient history, right? We often seem to become angry with Clodius as he drives Cicero into exile, a very unjust act that was going on, carried out by an unjust person against the person who who is reasonably just, right? When we see that sort of thing, we're, we're starting to get angry. We're starting to get riled up. You could think about looking at stuff in social media and you see a, a report about what those bastards are doing now and you start getting angry about it, right? What else? He says that who's not stirred when faced with Marius's arms or Sulla's proscription? Who doesn't hate Theodotus and Achilles and the actual child who dared a grown-up crime? I mean, us, because we don't generally pay attention to those people. But, you know, we can think about the people we see depicted in television shows. You know, I can't believe what happened in Westworld or Game of Thrones or pick whatever else you want, right? And all of these will be behind us soon enough, but people get very, very angry about that, don't they? So these initial things, he says, sometimes a song sets us on edge, a double-time tune, the martial sound of war trumpets, a horrific picture stirs our 
our minds, right? And he, he gives some other examples, you know, when we're with other people that are smiling, we smile back. When we're with mourners, we feel sad and fear can do this as well. So he says, these are not passions, but the first preludes to passion. And he says, none of these should be called passion. They merely chance to move the mind. The mind doesn't so much cause them as suffer them. If I can put it that way, passion consists not in being stirred in response to impressions presented to us, but in these other two stages, in surrendering ourselves to those impressions and following up the mind's chance movement. So, you know, he gives an example of turning pale or shedding tears, the first stirrings of sexual arousal, a deep sigh, a suddenly sharpened glance, anything along these lines, whoever reckons them a clear token of passion and a sign of the mind's engagement is mistaken and fails to understand their bodily involuntary movements. It's when we collaborate with them, when we go along with them, when we involve, as he's going to say, deliberation, eudicio, or assent, assensus, right? Or the will, voluntas, or reason itself, the rational part of ourselves, ratio, that we start getting into trouble in the second portion of this dynamic of anger. And so he says that what we have the opportunity to do is to take a stand against that anger. You know, suppose someone has reckoned he was harmed, wants to take revenge and immediately calms down when some reason, maybe supplied by himself or somebody else, urges against it. I don't call this anger. I call it the movement of a mind still obedient to reason. Anger in its full sense happens in this third movement, right? He says, anger is something that leaps clear of reason, that snatches reason up and carries it along. So what is really anger? The intentional movement that follows, which is not only taken in the impression, but affirmed it. And then we get to this stage where it's not just affirming it, but has affirmed it. That's anger, the arousal of a mind that moves willingly and deliberately with, as we said, will and judgment towards vengeance. So these are the three stages here. And what this means is that we actually have considerable control or opportunity for control if we actually practice it if we don't allow it to get to this third movement, third stage where we've actually lost control and now are just going to be subject to it. So three main movements, three main stages to how anger develops for Seneca. And this is not just for anger. This is also for other emotions as well. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.